This episode of Rewind of the Living Dead is brought to you by nightchannels.com, the only place on the internet to get that darker side for your t-shirts and hoodies. These are amazing, unique t-shirts and hoodie designs for occult, music, literature, and films. Of course, they got loads of amazing horror t-shirts. There's this Texas Chainsaw one that you gotta have. They got Alien, but they also got these deep cuts like Begotten. You know Begotten, right? Because you're a hardcore horror fan like I am, or Guinea Pig. It's like that across the entire site for their music, for the anime, for other kind of media categories. Such cool designs that you're not going to find anywhere else. Go on there. There's no way you're not going to get a t-shirt or hoodie. I guarantee you. Tons of color options. The t-shirts have two fabric options. Classic 90s style, which is Gildan, or that great modern combed cotton Bella option. And the best part about all this these are one-of-a-kind designs, and all of it has really great competitive prices. In fact, if you go there right now and you enter the code RewindAt at checkout, you get 13% off. That's right, 13% off at checkout if you let them know that Rewind of the Living Dead sent you. Uh, so when you're at the next convention or concert and someone asks, where'd you get that shirt? The only answer is at nightchannels.com. And be sure to visit them on Instagram at nightchannels as well. Um, that's N-I-G-H-T channels.com. Uh, and be sure at checkout to enter the code rewind to get your 13% off. Rewind of the Living Dead is a review show, so spoilers are ahead. As she prepared to direct her first solo feature, future Oscar winner Catherine Bigelow wanted to film a Western movie, but she found it difficult to secure financing and a studio to back up her vision. So alongside co-writer Eric Redd, who also penned the horror film The Hitcher, Bigelow shifted gears to combine her idea for a modern Western with the vampire genre that had become increasingly popular in recent years, especially after the success of Fright Night, as well as another film called The Lost Boys that was set for release that same year. Bigelow didn't want to make the same kind of movie as traditional vampire stories steeped in gothic or even romantic themes. Instead, her interpretation was much darker and grimier than most vampire stories. In fact, she never even uses the word vampire in her film. Set against the dusty backdrop of the Southwest, a young cowboy named Caleb falls for a beautiful girl named May, but he soon discovers that one kiss from her comes along with a deadly invitation to join her family. Separate your head from your shoulders. Do it fast. All right. The time's rolling. Woo! No! Might as well just kill me then, too. Caleb Colton no longer belongs to our world. We'll give him a week to see if we can call him one of us. He belongs to hers. But you have to learn to kill. He belongs to theirs. I don't want to kill. He makes a kill tonight. And they all belong to the night. It's three hours short for a bus to get home. You help me out? What are you on? Believe me, I told you. Just don't think of it as killing. Amen. Amen. Don't think at all. It's just something that you do night after night. It's only ever a question of I'm nervous. I would be too if I were you. Near dark. Be your boys fall in with control. Check out time. Put your 
myself some time, son. God damn, this is my family. Let him go. In the latest episode of Rewind of the Living Dead, we're going to black out the car windows and crank up the Tangerine Dream as we discuss the 1987 classic, Near Dark. And I'm Patrick Guerra. And Patrick, this week we are going to be taking a deep dive into a classic horror film from the 1980s, a vampire classic that just recently dropped over at our friends at Shudder. Hey, Shudder. Hi, Shudder. And uh, we're going to talk about Near Dark, which is uh, from the same year, actually uh, two months after The Lost Boys came out, two completely, okay, let me say this, completely different, yet also eerily similar vampire yeah. films. Yeah, I think, uh, you know, Catherine Bigelow uh, very famously wanted to kind of skirt the vampire lore and do something totally different. And it turned out just down the street at another studio, Joel Schumacher was also doing exactly that same thing. So in 1987, it was right. They were both yeah. released mm-hmm. in 1987. You got two of arguably the best vampire movies ever made, and they don't follow any of the traditional vampire uh, lore, which is Interesting, Damon, because if I'm to lift the veil a little bit and show our listeners behind the scenes, um, we chose to do Near Dark, A, because it just came out on Shutter, which is great, and people are talking about it, but B, we just finished reviewing, as of this recording, we just finished reviewing Morbius, and we kind of wanted to get the stink off of us. <laughs> it was like, oh, this is a great opportunity because Near Dark is such a great vampire movie. Morbius also doesn't follow traditional vampire ideas. He's a living vampire. Uh, but Near Dark Damon, really something special, right? Now, again, that same year, we had the Joel Schumacher, Warner Brothers, big studio, Lost Boys, one of my favorite movies of all time, a really, really awesome, awesome movie. And on the flip side, we have Near Dark, an indie, a tiny little movie. And at this time in the 1980s, a $5 million movie might as well have been a $10 movie. Like you couldn't make a movie for $5 million as far as they were concerned. They didn't know how you did it. They made this tiny little indie thriller, uh, outlaw, you know, forbidden love, crazy, just trip of a, of a movie in Near Dark. Yeah, it's really interesting because, uh, you know, it's funny that these two movies come out and you said that, you know, of course, these are two of the probably most revered vampire movies of all time. Now, I'm not going to sit here and lie and say that I like Near Dark more than The Lost Boys, because that's an unfair comparison, because I think The Lost Boys is 
probably a top 10 movie for me all time. We reviewed it. You heard, if you go back to that episode, you can just listen to us fillet that episode, fillet that movie for two hours straight. Um, that being said, I love near dark. And I think what I love most about near dark, and there's a lot that I'd like about near dark. And also for anyone curious, we are going to get into spoilers immediately. The movie's, you know, 40 years old, 30 years old at this point. So yeah, yeah we're not, we're not, we're not, spoiler show. we're not skirting around the edges for a movie. This is old. Um, but what I like most about near dark when I saw it the first time and then, you know, I've subsequently seen it multiple times, but most recently a couple nights ago was the unconventional way. This story goes about telling vampires that it goes about, you know, having vampires. It's a, you know, the only movie that this reminds me of, and people are going to say, how does this movie remind you of that? Another movie that I think we've mentioned on past episodes that I love, and we will eventually get around to reviewing it one day is 30 days a night. And what I love about 30 days a night very much, you know, in that sense of, is it takes away any sense of humanity for those vampires. Those vampires are nothing but animals looking for a meal, right? Mm-hmm. There's no, you know, they don't really speak. They don't try to you know, have a conversation with you. There's no romanticism whatsoever. They are bloodthirsty ghouls looking for dinner, you know, and, and the most intelligent thing they can do is, you know, find this town, in Alaska that has 30 days of night in a row. So they could just feed and feed and feed and never have to worry about the daylight. The reason I compare this to 30 days a night in totally wholly unique vampire mythos is that for one, as I mentioned in the intro, near dark never says the word vampires. You never see them expose their fangs. You never see them. You know, they're not sleeping in coffins and they're not turning into bats and they're not, you know, afraid of crosses. Actually at one point, you know, there's a gun with a cross on it. You're proving the whole Christianity mythology of vampires is, is kind of debunked in a movie like this. And largely, even though they are, you know, they're kind of, uh, you know, rowdy, you know, uh, rebellious vampires, I guess is the best way to say it. Yeah, they're outlaws. Um, They're ultimately very animalistic. You know, they're very, they're, they're, they're a band, a family of people who are together and they kill for food and there's no remorse, no feeling towards their victims. You know, they're not looking at humans as, well, we're not going to kill this guy because he's a nice guy. We're going to kill this guy because he's an asshole. No, they're just looking at us as food. And yeah. so in that way, kind of like 30 days a night, I appreciated that particular take on vampires. Cause even though these are again, much more animated, you know, talking conversational, having vampires, uh, they're really animalistic in their intention. And I really appreciated that because it is a much different take than even the lost boys. Like I love the lost boys, but the lost boys is a much different version of vampire than even this film. No, it's true. This is a very, very unique movie. And it's funny because I've seen it a few times in my life, but it had been a while since I've watched it. I always remember enjoying it. Um, What I didn't what had never hit me on the previous viewings was just how intricate this movie is as in terms of character. uh, I don't want to say character development necessarily, but it's like these are fully fleshed out and realized characters. They are vampires that have clearly lived a very long life. They make references to events in history from a long time ago, the Civil War, the Chicago Fire. They've they've been around for a hundred years or more as vampires. So they feel very lived in. Uh, These vampires, like, you get a taste of it in The Lost Boys, but not quite really. In this one, you know that they're, like, each one of the vampires that you meet is going through some shit. 
and like what I loved is like the, they kind of bicker there. You, you talk about them being familial. They bicker. And I always thought about how what would it be like if you're immortal? You can't die. So you're probably going to end up hanging out with other people that are like you, other vampires like you. But they're going to get on your fucking nerves every now and then. Like there's going to be tension because it's like no humans are supposed to interact for too long. These humans that once humans are interacting for a hundred plus years. So there was like this interesting dynamic that's already baked in when you meet them. There are like even the first time that they pluck uh, Caleb, you know, who, who who turned in the middle of the night, they pluck him into their RV. They're already like halfway through a conversation. They're already like in the middle of stuff. I like that. I thought it was really cool. It, it's a very lived in world. That does come down to the fact that we're talking about a future Oscar-winning director in Catherine Bigelow. You see it. You see the skill, the storytelling skill, the, um, the, the, the visual skill. It's all there. It's really exciting. It's really different. It's like watching your favorite indie director direct a horror film. It is. Let, let me go back to something you said there about the lived in characters, because I think that's a really, really important point and, and a great point you made there, because we talk all the time about story and, and character development, how important they are to the to the uh, overall enjoyability of a film, I guess is the best way to say it. And, and you know me, yeah. like I said, I'm, I'm a story guy. I'm always a story guy. Plot and story and character are the things I look for most in a movie. Of course, I love effects. I love gore. I love the great scares. But again, you know, just like we talked about, like we've talked about movies on here before where we say like, we hate the characters so much. We're like, well, we don't really care if they die because we don't like them anyways. Right. Um, one thing I loved about this is that when you talk about character development, when we meet, you know, Jesse and Severin and Diamondback and Homer, and of course, May as well, you talk about how they're already in that like familial relationship. They know each other so well, and you're kind of playing in a way we're seeing everything through Caleb's eyes. He's the newcomer. He's learning these people yeah. as they go why I love the character development in this movie is because they do feel so familiar with each other and the way they talk to each other, you learn things about them almost through coincidence, but it's right. obviously in there for a purpose. Just like when, you know, Caleb asked Jesse, how old are you? And he said, well, let's just say I fought for the South. We lost. And I was like, okay, you know, he was around during the civil war. Like that's, again, it's a very, you know, throw, it's a great line, but it's not like, you know, they don't make him go on some origin story no. in the middle of the film. Like I was born in 1944 and I fought in the <laughs> <laughs> yeah, you there's, yeah, exactly. a, there's a version of this movie where they do that. They do flashbacks yeah. and they do like yeah. all that, you know, like very true blood. Now I like true blood first couple seasons. But, like, they could have made a version of that where they're doing flashbacks and big monologues about, like, how they were created. We don't need any of that, yet these characters all feel very developed, very unique. Mm -hmm. You know, again, mysterious, but also very unique. You, you understand right away Jesse's the leader. You understand the command he has over his over his people. You, you establish right away that Diamondback is 100% obsessed with Jesse. Like, she is 100% obsessed with him. Severin is clearly the wild child. He is the, the loose cannon of this group. He is the, the guy that you don't fuck with, so to speak. You know what I mean? And then Homer, you know, it, it, in a lot of ways, you know, this is, I, I, I don't want to, I don't want to pigeonhole this movie and say this is the first, cause I know I'm sure it's not. I'm just saying like, for my memory, this is a great film where you introduce a child vampire, you know, again, one of the greatest vampire movies ever made, let the right one in 
kind of reestablishes so, yeah. that of like you know a child being a vampire but being you know hundreds of years old so you got a you know living in a child's body but she's actually like 100 and 200 years old whatever it is homer is the same way homer's a kid but he's a he's a man you know he's a man yeah. living in a boy's body he's been living for 200 years or 100 years or whatever it is I love that. And and then May, of course, is kind of the idealistic, you know, girl who wants more than what she's getting from this family, which is when she seeks out Caleb. I mean, just from the very opening of the movie, when you meet her and she's just hanging around other teenagers and she's eating an ice cream cone, you immediately get the sense that she's looking for something. She's looking for more than what her family is providing her. And all of that came within the first 20 minutes of this movie. You know what I mean? I understood every I understood the motivation of every character in this film within the first 20 minutes of that movie. And that to me is incredible storytelling and incredible execution by a director. Of course, in her first full length feature film, by the way, this is the first film she directed on her own. She co-directed a film years earlier, but this is her first feature length film. And we saw the greatness. And of course, Catherine Bigelow went on to win an Oscar. And we all kind of saw realize years later with the hurt locker and other films she's done. But it was brilliant because 20 minutes in I'm invested and that's huge because that keeps you intrigued and along for the ride until the very end. Yeah. uh, This is high level filmmaking and she clearly had it. Then she had it then in her very first film uh, as a solo director, she had this knack for like how, how to develop these characters effortless, effortlessly, completely effortlessly. And I wa- I ended up watching a little bit of a documentary. I got about halfway through it that, um, you know, talks to the, the main actors and, and talks to Catherine Bigelow. She gave them a lot of space to develop their characters. Lance Henriksen plays uh, Jesse Hooker, the, the kind of leader of the vampires. He, he had this in, in very intricate backstory for this character. 99% of that never shows up on film. But... She she let him like work that out. And I've, I've heard this a lot when I'm, when I'm listening to podcasts about I actually listen to a lot of podcasts uh, that that are actors talking about their craft because I want to direct actors. So I want to hear from them. I want to hear how it works good for them. They tend to like tense up and clinch up and, and become protective when a director does not give them room to play with the character, does not give them room to create if the if the director's like i have this vision and you have to you have to be on it 100 percent no deviations that's not Catherine bigelow now she does know exactly what she wants she just gives you the space to get there so what you end up with is a really rich really painted really textured film that's simple it's a simple idea um and, and she was really playing with some weird shit like I was, I don't know about you, how thrown off were you in this latest viewing of like the love affair between Caleb and May, which is what kicks everything off? Didn't you find it like really odd and weird and idealistic and strange? Oh yeah, absolutely. And, and, and almost, um, what's the word I'm looking for here? Almost melodramatic. Uh, it is, but it's also like it, 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 it turns from a flirtation to a possession. Yeah. She views Caleb as her thing. You know, that's what I took away. Like in the beginning, he's kind of like this, you know, this kind of flamboyant playboyish cowboy who looks at her and says, you know, I'm going to score with this girl and I'm going to pick her up and all that kind of stuff. He has kind of like this idea. And then she kind of turns the tables on him. And then when she actually bites him and then they end up like taking him and and pulling him into the RV, you know, she throws herself on top of him and she says, he's mine. Like, you know, you're not going to hurt him. You got to hurt me. 
and it, it 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 transitions rather quickly from a love affair to almost like a possession like she is his you know or yeah. he is he is hers yeah, and she's hers me. yeah and and i love and then again it, it continues to transition and change and alter and grow and, and evolve from there to you know when you get towards the end where he's come around to where he really does love me but i loved it like they trail it because when you think about that when you're 100 years old let's just say 80 years old our old may is and you've never had your own pet I don't know better with lack of a lack of a better <laughs> word, but you don't you never had your own pet. You never had your own thing. Yeah. Imagine the loneliness of that. You know what I mean? Imagine the yes. sheer loneliness of that. So seeing that, like she and you see it again. This is a great character development. You know, when when she first introduces Homer, Homer's like, "I made you." May is Homer's. So like Homer looks at May as like his thing. Like that's his possession. He made her, and right. then she says something very similar where she's like, "I want my own." She doesn't mm-hmm. look at Caleb as like, I'm going to fall in love with this boy right away. She looks at him as like, hey, this is my pet. This is my thing. Yeah. And I love that. And then you have to see that uh, that relationship grow and evolve and change throughout the movie. And then by the end, of course, it's kind of, you know, sp- you know, blossomed into a full-blown relationship where Caleb's feelings and May's feelings are the same. But I love that at the beginning because that's one thing I did. I, I always looked at this as like a weird vampire love story. Yeah, But watching too. it, watching it again, I was like, it's not love at the beginning. It's full on possession. She looks at him as her as her object. You know what I mean? You know, he, he's an object of her affection, but it, it's not that she loves him. She sees him as a possession. I think she owns. I think she wants. And there's something so much darker about that. Well, I think what threw me was that the the romantic aspect of the movie is like super classical and that's again Catherine Catherine Bigelow having a very deep well of knowledge of film so she was looking at the old romantic movies of the 50s she was really looking at like like romantic noirs like movies like they live by night and shit like that um so what I what when I realized that that's what she was going for, the movie made so much more sense to me because it's classical romance. So I think what 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 seemed to be in her head was there's this band of thieves. Forget that they're vampires for a second. They're these band of thieves that live by night. They're on the run. And one of the young, you know, the, the young 20 something year old thieves finds a, a, a boy and she wants to be in love with him. She wants she wants him like she she just takes what she wants in the world. She's a thief. So she finds this thing that she wants and takes it. And the, it, it creates a rift in her band of thieves because that puts their whole way of life in jeopardy. But because they live this way, you know, she, she, they, she has this mental idea of like, well, I'm going to get what I want. That's what we do. We get what we want. And, and it, creates, it creates the conflict. The conflict of this movie is really – Caleb and and May against the 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 rest of the group against Homer Diamondback Jesse and Severin, you know, and then and then you add in the aspect of course of course of uh, 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 Caleb's dad Loy and and his sister Sarah on the search for him. It's ju- like just cut out the vampire thing for a second. You just have a compelling story about outlaws who who steal a pretty boy and and you know what what comes of all that. Yeah, well, you can see, and that's what I talked about in the intro, like, you can see how this is a great idea for a Western. They couldn't make a Western, yeah. so they injected the vampire ideology, and it makes it a it makes it makes a, a science fiction horror film, and there are definitely a lot of horrific elements to this, but I love the way they tweak and change that, because, again, I know there's been imitations of this, I know there's been copies, I mean, 
Um, you know, you could look at a movie, which again, different in terms of the, the style and everything, but like, I know a lot of people don't like this film, but I love it. Uh, is John Carpenter's vampires where it's, you know, it takes place in New Mexico. It's a very, it's a, it's a Western set as a vampire movie. You know what I mean? Very much in that, in that vein. Now the vampires is a much different film than near dark, but I love that you, you take it away from like a certain kind of setting where you think most vampire films take place and everything about this movie is different than the traditional vampire film outside of the fact that yes, they do drink blood. But again, you're not getting the other, you're not getting any of the other conventional ideology about vampires in this movie. And I love that she, I love that Catherine Bigelow and Eric red, like when they wrote this script and they, and they, you know, got it into the, into production that they, they brought all of those elements out in the filmmaking process to where, again, you have to understand and, 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 come to your own conclusions about who these people are and what they're after and why they're after it. They're not banging you over the head. Like I said, there's a, and, and here's the thing. And, and this is a really, really delicate line, a really, really delicate line to balance. Um, some filmmakers, when they try that, and we've talked about films like that on this podcast, where they try to hint at what they're going for, but they do such a bad job of actually, laying it out for you that you either don't figure it out or you're like, what? Like we talked about this a lot with Halloween kills where we're like, huh? Like, what are you trying to say? Like, we're trying to figure out like what, like both actually, and even in Halloween 2018, like there was a point in that movie where we're kind of like, okay, we love the movie, but there's one plot point where you never really made it clear. And I guess you're trying to lay it out to us to figure out, but it's never clear, like what we're figuring out. And then Halloween kills, like literally takes a shot of steroids and does it all over again in a worse (laughs) way. Um, this film does that where they walk up to the line, they introduce you to the line, they don't cross the line, but you have to figure out what's there. And they do a great job of doing that. And that is the antithesis of a great filmmaker. And again, there is a version of this film where they over explain things and you're kind of like, okay, I've had enough. I don't need to know about Jesse's entire family from the civil war and everything he did. Yeah. I don't need to know all that. And then there's another version of the story where it's so, you know, you're so uh, out there and so um, what's the word I'm looking for? Like just so obtuse with the storytelling yes. where you're kind of like, I have no idea what the fuck is going on here. <laughs> it's a real delicate balance. And I think that, you know, Catherine Bigelow and credit to Eric red as the co-writer, they really strike a delicate balance and they, they figure it out and you, and you know it, like, like I said, they, I love that. They never use the word vampire in this movie. You never see them like flash out their fangs or, you know, again, the, the most, common tropes of vampirism in this movie are they drink blood and they stay at night. They can't go into daylight. That's really it. That's it. it. And you don't have anything to go beyond that, but you know exactly what they're going for and exactly what their motivations are without them ever really saying it. Well, you hit, you hit the nail on the head. This movie is the opposite of obtuse. It is. It doesn't throw a ton of things at you. That's the problem with Halloween kills. It actually throws too much at you. Too much is going on. Another advantage that uh, Near Dark has over a movie like Halloween Kills is that you actually get insight from the bad guys um, without, again, very clever, not hammering you over the head with exposition. Um, I, I think, you know, we, we, we again, this is off the heels of us recording Morbius. That was a big problem with Morbius. Morbius was like action scene, action scene, action scene, stop, exposition so we can get to the next action scene. Yeah. That starts to feel empty after a while. You're you're just being told the story. You're not living it. You're not in the shoes. A criticism I have of Near Dark is that the main character, uh, played by Adrian Pazdar, uh, called Caleb, 
he's sort of just reacting to the situation. He, it, it's something that a, a, like a, I've had a problem with, and I've read a lot of amateur scripts. The main character is almost just being pushed through the movie, and everybody around him is doing all the work. Yeah. That's kind of what happens in this movie. But it's done to such perfect effect because the characters are so perfectly developed and you're given just enough at all times to fill in the blanks that you are sort of being taken on the ride like Caleb is. You're just like, Caleb doesn't know what the fuck's going on. He really yeah. doesn't understand any of this shit. So you are in his shoes in that respect where you're just like, I'm just going to watch this shit unfold. It's kind of crazy. Like, you know, and, that, and I, my I was only, into it. My only, and it's not a defense, just a, a kind of a counterpoint to what you're saying there. My only counterpoint would be, I think, and I agree with you, they do kind of carry him along in the plot where he's kind of like a bystander to his own story. The one thing I would defend that, though, is that I think a lot of this, and I think part of the reason why it works so well in this film, is that he's so, he's, he's shell-shocked. You know, he's yeah. in, he's he does not, he, in the moment he's in, he does not fully grasp what he stepped into. And I think that is well um, on display throughout the first, you know, 45 minutes of the movie where you're just kind of, in a way, you're kind of seeing everything through his eyes where, again, one of the, like, one thing that bothers me a lot in a lot of modern science fiction and horror movies is the quick acceptance of the supernatural, the quick acceptance of otherworldly things happening. Now I'm not saying there aren't people out there that do that because QAnon exists. So I fully understand there's lunatics (laughs) out there that will believe whatever you tell them. But what works so well in a, in a film like this is that they're telling you without telling you Mm -hmm. they're showing you without explaining to you and you have to figure it out. And in that moment, if you're Caleb, put yourself in his shoes and you see this band of wild, crazy, insane people who don't get exposed to the sun. And they're basically telling you at some point you have to kill to survive. You have a limited amount of time to learn how to kill and drink blood. You have to drink blood to survive. Now, of course we know, Oh, it's vampires, but imagine yourself in that role. Like you're like, this yeah. can't be real. What, what psychotic lunatics are out there thinking they're drinking blood and surviving. Like you just wouldn't, you wouldn't believe it. Even if you, even if you feel like you're cooking in the sun, which is what Caleb has happened in before he gets rescued by the wild, crazy family. Even in that moment, you would be like the fuck, like this doesn't mean this isn't real. You know what I mean? Right. So I think a lot of his reactions of like kind of being carried through the story is just like the stunned nature of the situation where he's kind of like, I don't know what is happening right now. And like when he, there's a the great scene where he goes to the bus stop and he's just trying to get home and he's sick and he, he's, he's weak and he's, he's not, he's hungry. You know, he's trying to figure it out. And you see the vulnerability in that moment where he's kind of like, I just want to get away from this because I don't understand what's happening. Mm-hmm. That was actually the, the bus station is the moment in the movie where I finally accepted that. I was like, oh, like it really is like everything that has led up to this. Of course, he's just reacting to what's happening. He has no fucking clue what's happening. He really doesn't like it's it's treating the audience with the highest level of respect, which is you're going to have to do some of the the, the work here like we're going to show it to you. We're not going to tell it to you. I can't, I can't begin to tell you you're right. There are versions of this movie where Caleb is doing all the talking and that would fuck things up. Like, never mind, like, you know, Jesse or Severin going way too much into their backstory or something. If Caleb was doing too much talking in this movie, it would screw it up. It's like they knew how to pull it back just enough 
just enough. It's like it's that's that's the brilliance of this movie is like they pulled it right to the line and they didn't cross it, which is like that's lightning in a bottle. That's why this movie stands the test of time where you might be thrown off by it. But if you're a true film enjoyer, <laughs> like I think you and I are, and a lot of the people who listen to this are like movie nuts, that is why this movie hits, because it's not the most sophisticated uh, in a lot of ways. You know, it's not like it's not got the most amazing dialogue or anything like that. It's just all the elements coalesce so perfectly. All these characters move off of each other so well. These these design scenes, these uh, the fucking bar scene. Which is a memorable scene. I think everybody thinks about the bar scene when they think about Near Dark. How Tarantino is that? Like, oh, yeah. Tar- that Tarantino, like, that's the template for how Tarantino was going to direct everything. He was like, holy shit, you can just be in one room for, like, 10, 15 minutes, and the tension just keeps inching upward and upward until there's no room to breathe. Like, that's a fantastic scene. And this is, like, Catherine Bigelow's first directorial effort, and you're like, shit, it's crazy how good it is, and I think that's why it stands the test of time. Yeah, that bar scene might be one of my favorite, like, scenes of any film ever. Like, that scene just always sticks out to me And rewatching it. I actually, I watched the movie two nights ago. I went back yesterday, and I went back again today and just rewatched that scene because I loved everything about that scene, the entire way it plays out. Everything about it is, is incredible. And that is also, in my opinion, the scariest scene in the film, because even though it's not your traditional sense of scary, like jump scares or like that kind of thing, like when the vampires kind of, you know, when they go in and they, they come in and they take over this bar and then they lock the door at one point and there's a great line. It's not my favorite line, so I'm going to spoil it right here. But when Jesse, when they say, you know, uh, what do y'all want or something like that? And Jesse goes, I just need two minutes of your time, which is about the same duration, duration you have for rest. You have the same duration you have for the rest of your lives. And it's just yeah. right in that moment, you realize, Oh shit. You know, everyone in this bar is fucked. Like, you know what I mean? And yeah. you just see it. And the way that the vampires, the way that the group just continues to fuck with these people is so brilliant. Like they're not just out again. That's the difference between this and like 30 days a night. They're just not out there to eat. They're enjoying the the playing with their food you know they totally. enjoy that they enjoy the hunt you know they enjoy that part of it and i and I, and that kind of lets you know how twisted these people have become and again you talk about it like when you've been around people for 100 years or 80 years or whatever like you say we're not meant to be around you know the same people like that in in that setting without driving each other a little crazy imagine like how bored you would get by just simply you know uh and again i know it sounds terrible but like imagine if you're just so like if you're just so uh inundated with how you get your food you want different things it's, it's just like we are in our day-to-day life like you would not eat the same meal every single day for the i'm sure there are people out there that do it but i'm saying like typically you would not eat the same meal every single day without ever altering the way you eat it how you get your food how yeah. you choose to sit down and eat your food like all the different things you think about when you have a meal now think about doing that for 80 years straight how loon, how incredibly insane you would go so we go to a restaurant or we order out different kind of food or we travel and we like ooh, we want to check out this place that's us eating now imagine that in a vampire setting You know what I mean? Now they're like, oh, I don't want to just eat my, I don't want to just eat a person. I want to toy with my prey. I want to have them, you know, I want to have them react. I want to get their adrenaline pump and they taste different when they're doing this. You know what I mean? Like all those little things are ingrained and baked into that scene. It makes total sense based on what you're saying. And then it also does it, it, it functions in another great way. It makes you stop falling in love with these people. 
Oh, yeah. they're, they're highly charismatic. Like they're very charismatic. You know, the great Lance Henriksen playing Jesse Hooker, the amazing Bill Paxton as Severin, un, unbeatable, right? Uh, Jeanette Goldstein, who I love, Vasquez from Aliens, is Diamondback. And how cool of a name is Diamondback? And she's this cool, you know, bleach blonde, just outlaw chick. Like they're cool. They, in that scene, you realize, oh, shit, it's not cool hanging out with these people. Yeah. It's actually – they're ruthless killers. They are ruthless killers who are going to toy with their food because it's how they get their kicks. This is what they do. Like it, it, it – just when you got comfortable in this movie, the stakes get raised and Caleb is like, oh, shit. Because in that moment, he was kind of fucking with the idea of just turning – straight to them and be and killing for food and and you know basically leaning all the way into it he was a bit hesitant but he's gonna fuck with it in that moment and when he sees what they're capable of the, the 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 sadistic nature that they have he wants no part of it and so and so it's it's a great breaking point to go i don't want to step to that level and again it's without him going i don't want to be this and he's like tearing at his shirt and all you know <laughs> like he doesn't have to do any of that he just goes this fucking crazy, you know, like any, and, and, and his action rather than his words changes things. Cause he lets the one guy in the bar go, the guy he should have killed, who was just cowering in the corner, watching everything going on. He lets that guy go. And it creates a bunch of new problems because he's again, resisting the call to join these people. Yeah. That's lost boys is kind of like that too. Like Michael's like, a, like he's, um, you know, he, he's he's very curious about the life that the Lost Boys lead. He kind of wants to do it, but he realizes once he sees them feed, oh, shit, no, I don't. Actually, I really don't. How do I stop this? And that's kind of that's kind of the same moment here in the bar for Caleb. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, before we get to categories real quick, I want to go over a little bit of trivia with this movie that we discovered in the lead up here. A couple of things I want to talk about. So, of course. Um, this film came out in 1987, a year after the great film Aliens opened, which was directed by the iconic James Cameron. Of course, two seconds of research will tell you that Catherine Bigelow was actually married to James Cameron for several years. And James Cameron actually had an influence on this film because as Catherine Bigelow was putting together, she knew James Cameron. And he basically suggested to her about using part of the Aliens cast, which if you know this movie, you realize like half the cast is from Aliens. Lance Hendrickson, of course, played Bishop. Of course, Bill Paxton was uh, was. Um, uh, um, uh, Hudson, I'm, I'm, excuse me, sorry, Hudson, Hudson yeah. played <laughs> yeah, Hudson, and of course you mentioned uh, you mentioned uh, Jeanette uh, was it Jeanette Goldstein? She plays uh, Vasquez. Uh, Vasquez. Uh, there was actually another cast member, Michael Bean, who of course played Hicks in Aliens. He was actually up for the original role of Jesse, and he turned it down because he didn't understand the script. He didn't quite get it, and so they cast Lance Henderson. Now. You will not find a bigger fan of Michael Bean in the world than me. I got to go to the Aliens anniversary panel at San Diego Comic-Con a few years ago, and the two things I was, well, three things I was most excited about. Sigourney Weaver, which, of course, why not? Uh, Bill Paxton, who I have remained a fan of, and, of course, sadly, he's gone. What an incredible actor. And the other one was Michael Bean because Michael Bean has kind of faded from the spotlight in recent years. There was a great story on him, I want to say in like 2017, 2018 in The Hollywood Reporter. If you look it up, read it. It's incredible. Just talking about how he was like a, a prolific action star in the 80s. And then he just kind of faded away. Like he just stopped acting or he would only appear in like random B movies or like straight to video releases. And he stopped being in these big blockbusters. And it's a really, int really intriguing story. But I'm a huge fan of Michael Bean. So I love him. But it's hard for me to picture anybody else in this world because Lance Hendrickson is so good in this role. And I'm a big Lance Hendrickson fan as well. He is so deliciously evil in this role. And he's so good. Oh, man, so, um, good. 
So that's another. So that was also, and of course, also to that James Cameron point, there actually is a cameo from James Cameron in this movie. There's a scene where Severin is hitchhiking and somebody flips him off from a car. That's actually James Cameron. And there's also a scene early in the movie where they go to the where they're outside a movie theater and they are playing aliens in the movie theater. So there's a lot of aliens connections in the movie. There's more too. Um, so the cinematographer of this movie, who of course I didn't pull his name up right now, was the cinematographer for um, Terminator. And Terminator, let me tell you something, why why I fucking love Terminator so bad. The grit, the realism, it feels lived in. He was the perfect, perfect cinematographer to come out through this. Adam Greenberg, excuse me, that's who it was. And he was the perfect cinematographer to do this film because this is a lived-in story. It can't feel slick. It can't feel sexy. It's got to feel dirty and gritty. The original Terminator... Man, when you, when you, when you watch that movie over, the, the cinematography puts you in in the action. And that's exactly how it is in this as well. Yeah, absolutely. Also another uh, homage to another James Cameron film, uh, actor by the name of Robert Winley, who plays the biker who gets his drink stolen by Severin in the bar is the same biker in Terminator two that Ronald Schwarzenegger's character steals his clothes, his boots and his motorcycle uh, at the bar at the beginning of T2 Judgment Day. That's actually the same actor. I recognize him right away. I've seen this yeah. movie multiple times. But when I saw it this time, I was like, hey, it's that yeah, guy. That guy. Uh, <laughs> also, the kid who escapes from the bar who actually gets the cops to go after uh, the vampires is an actor by the name of James LaGrosse, who's been in a lot of things. He was in Justified. Uh, he was in a show called uh, Sleeper Cell, which I really enjoyed that show on Showtime. He's kind of one of those that guys. Like He's like, oh, I know yeah. that guy. James LaGrosse has been in a lot of movies. If you look his name up, you look up his IMDb page, you're going to recognize him from a lot of stuff. But he is the kid who actually uh, plays the one who gets away uh, from Caleb in the bar. So it was fun seeing him because I was like, hey, I know that guy too. Uh, so it was a really, again, the casting is incredible. I love the crossover with all the aliens because I've said on this show before, if you don't listen to every single episode, uh, why not? But also, uh, you know, I'm a huge Aliens fan. You know, I, Aliens is, again, top five movie for me all time. I love Alien, too, but let me be clear about that. Uh, but Aliens is just, I just absolutely love everything about that movie. And, and, and I'm going to say this. Uh, that this cast for such a small film is really incredible. No, th this cast is incredibly dynamic. I, I even love Tim Thomerson, who plays Caleb's uh, dad. He was he was the uh, the uh, tennis instructor in Who's Harry Crumb? I don't know. Oh if you ever my god, that. that's right! I didn't even think about that. <laughs> Who's Harry Crumb is one of my favorite movies. I fucking love John Candy. We could do a John Candy podcast and and totally <laughs> like spend hours talking about that. So I remember him from that one as well. I'm like, oh shit, it's that fucking tennis instructor, that fucking dick. <laughs> Holy crap, I completely forgot about it. Oh my god, you just blew my mind. Another thing, another great little like like twist on this uh, uh, this casting, Joshua John Miller, who plays the boy vampire Homer, is the half brother of Jason Patrick, who plays Michael in The Lost Boys. Like, what the fuck? Like, how 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 weird of a coincidence is that? That's wild. That's so wild. Yeah, yeah. talk about a small world, man. I know it seemed very incestuous back then. <laughs> like everybody was doing everything with everyone. I mean, obviously Catherine Bigelow and, uh, and James Cameron had a professional relationship before they even got married. And so she was on the set of Terminator. You know, she, she, she's a collaborator of James Cameron. It's all over this movie. You can see she learned from James a lot of stuff where it's like, Ooh, I know how to make this action big and exciting and fun. And, and on, she puts her own kind of like, like, pensive contemplative twist on everything so it's like she gives the james cameron action with the catherine bigelow thoughtfulness 
Yeah, yeah, it was really interesting. Uh, with that being said, Patrick, let's get into our categories because we do have a lot to talk about with the categories this week. We're going to kick things off as we do each and every week here on the show with best performance. And uh, for again, let me just go ahead and compliment everybody in this movie is good. Uh, yeah. I actually one per I'm not going to, this is not my best performance, but I do want to shout it out. Uh, I was, I kind of like low key forgot how good Jeanette Goldstein is in this movie uh, so playing good. diamondback. She's so good. And actually I'd seen the, uh, how, what is it? The, the, the movies that made us the series on Netflix, yeah. they did one on aliens in this recent season and they caught up with her and she actually owns a clothing store in California. Now, like she's not mm-hmm. acting anymore. She actually, I was, it was so cool to kind of catch up and see where she's at. Uh, she's low key, really good in this movie. She's not my best performance, but I want to shout her out real quick. Uh, that being said, Patrick, who is your best performance in, uh, near dark? This was a tough pick because I loved so many people. And I feel like there were some really obvious picks that will probably come up in in a moment here. But I couldn't help myself. I was truly enamored with Joshua John Miller as Homer, the the child man vampire. You and I have said this on this show multiple times. (laughs) When you get young kids, it's hit or big miss. It's one one or the other. This is a hit performance. There's something about this... This kid who's locked into arrested development, he's locked into a child's body, but he's 150 years old or, or so. We don't know. Somewhere, he's somewhere around there. So I loved the levels that he played because like all of these characters, you know, suffer some sort of psychosis, but most of them are adults. So they've they've sort of matured. They, they matured enough to when they turned, they could kind of get through it all. You see with Joshua's performance that sometimes he's very much one of the adults and one of the bosses, like, you know, he bosses around May because he turned her. But then there are times where he just he just um, uh, digresses into being a kid. And it's like you could re- you realize, oh, man, like being locked as an eternally as a kid is a true hell. And he's going through it. And I totally felt it in his performance. He's also really creepy because the scene when yes. he finally meets Sarah, who is Caleb's sister, and he brings her back with him kind of the same way that May did with Caleb. And that's also a moment where you kind of realize that they didn't look at it out of love. They looked at it out of possession. He sees mm-hmm. Sarah and he's like, I want my own, you know, I want yeah. my own. I want what, what may has with Caleb. I want my own. And there's a really creepy moment there where yeah. you see him kind of possessing Sarah and it's just, Oh, it's and in that. I tell you what, this is what was the best part about that performance for me is that that was the moment where I forgot. I forgot he was a kid. I yes. forgot he was a kid. I was like, oh, crap. Like, this is a full-on blown adult in a, in a child's body, even though it, it's still a child, of course. But, like, yeah. that's the moment where he crossed the line, where I was like, oh, my God, this isn't a child. This is a full-blown adult in a child's body. It was a great performance. It's such levels of psychosis that he could play. And I was I was just, like, blown away. I was like, there, and there's all good performances. I mean, shit, you're talking about Jeanette Goldstein, the scene stealer of Aliens, come, like, is in this movie with, like, 20 times the amount of dialogue and kills it. You know, yeah. like th- there's just not a bad performance in here. What did you pick? Uh, well, let me just say real quick for Jeanette Goldstein. Let me just throw this out there. You always were an asshole, Gorman. <laughs> Sorry. <laughs> Heather, one of my favorite alien lines. Oh, uh, is it any shock that my best performance is Bill Paxton? I mean, come not, on. Not you, you, you knew where I was going with this I one. Uh, I am uh, the biggest Bill Paxton stand in the universe. I love Bill Paxton. Uh, everything he's in. And I tell you what, I want to say about this performance in particular, because he is having so much fun. 
Mm-hmm. In this movie, he looks like he is having a blast. Like he looks yeah. like he is having an absolute blast making this movie. Cause even as evil, like Lance Hendrickson is so good in this movie. Lance Hendrickson is great. This he's, might be Lance Hendrickson's best performance. It might be. He's so dark and evil and sinister, but he has to keep it a little contained. You know what I mean? Yeah. He, he's that's the character. He can't be over the top. He has to be that kind of like when he said that line I said earlier, where he said, you know, two minutes about the same duration as you have for the rest of your life. There's something dark and sinister about the way he delivers that. He can't be as deliciously over the top with that yeah. performance. He's great. But Bill Pax is having so much fun. Like, it feels like he's in a different movie than everybody else because he loves his life. He's having a blast. He's mm-hmm. fucking with people. And this film in particular, along with Aliens, where he plays Hudson, who is like the neurotic, you know, kind of, uh, uh, you know, surfer boy kind of character yeah. of that film where, you know, of course the, the famous, you know, game over, man, game over. <laughs> um, I've always liked Bill Paxton. It's again, no shame, you know, no surprise in me saying that if you've heard me on the show before we did frailty several episodes ago, I raved about Bill Paxton that episode. Um, honestly, Patrick, what this film convinced me of, not that I needed convincing, but I think Bill Paxton, sadly, of course, he's gone. He died a few years ago. Incredible loss. I think he might be one of the five greatest actors to ever work in Hollywood. And I'm not kidding when I say that. When I think about the range of his performances over the course of his career, from Big Love to True Lies to Aliens to this to Frailty, go on down the line. Uh, Hatfields versus McCoys, which is another role you know, shortly before mm-hmm. his passing. Um his range and performance is so brilliant. It's awe-inspiring. Like, I, it, it's so sad that he's gone, and it breaks my heart every time we talk about Bill Paxton because uh, he's one of my favorite actors. But I really do mean this. Watching this movie, I was like, you know what? I think he might be one of the five greatest actors to ever step in front of a camera. It's not a crazy statement because when I think about it, and I'm looking at everybody on this list, and these are all, again, everybody did a great job. But like, has Bill Paxton ever had a miss? They've all been hits. Like, and, and I don't mean blockbuster hits. I don't mean like success. I mean, like, has he ever given you a character where you're like, that's not going to work. Like, that's not working. Even when he's the bully brother in Weird Science. Like, or was it Weird Science? Or yeah, yeah, Weird Science. Yeah, right. weird, yeah. yeah, it was Weird Science. Yeah, I mean, it's just like every character he ever had was memorable. It was incredible and memorable. And this was a tiny little indie film. This was not a studio movie, nothing like that. Like Bill could have phoned this one in. Instead, he he was she was taking a cue from Lance Henriksen, who was his, a kind of his veteran brother in the acting uh, world, and and he took the role super seriously. And he said, uh, Bill Paxton, who who I, I've I've had the chance of talking to, and I know you have as well, super thoughtful guy. Oh yeah. He he said, I'm gonna be Jim Morrison. You know, the 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 guy from, uh, the, you know, the doors, the rock star. He's like, I'm just going to have my Jim Morrison moment, you know, mixed in with the mania of being a psycho killer. And it totally works when when you mention it, any hardcore fan of Near Dark, the first image that pops in their mind is half burnt, half gory Bill Paxson the Severin. Like he is the most memorable part of this movie. You cannot like, yes, of course he would have been my best performance, but I was like, it's coming anyway. If I don't <laughs> pick him, Damon's going to pick him. And we're going to talk about him ad nauseum anyway. It's it, it is like the movie is him. Even the, the poster is Bill Paxton. It's he's not the lead of the movie. The lead of the movies are, 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 are Adrian Pazder and Jenny Wright. These two star crossed lovers. It's still Bill Paxton. Like he's, he completely, 
sucks up all the air in a great way and he steals the show yeah he's so good and also let me throw this out there and again i know you know it's kind of heartbreaking to even talk about bill paxton because he's gone but you always you always hear these things and it's true and i trust me i've, I've lived this throughout my life you know when i w- used to work in the music industry uh they always say never meet your heroes you know and there's actually times where i met people in like the music industry i was a huge fan of i'm not going to name names but I met them and I was like, I seriously stopped listening to their music afterwards. Even though I loved the <laughs> band, the people were such incredibly terrible people or just incredible assholes. I'm like, yep, you've ruined the music for me because now I know yeah. who you really are. Um, you met him. I met him at Comic-Con. I've said this story before. I don't want to just rehash a story. I probably told a couple times in the show, but you know, I got to go to a, a, a party when I used to work for Fox back in the day. And it was the year of the aliens anniversary. And I actually got to go to like a private party and Bill Paxton was there. And I just walked up to him, said, Mr. Paxton, I'm a huge fan. Uh, I love everything you do. Thank you for all your hard work. Thank you for everything you've done. I just want to say, I appreciate you for everything you've ever done in your career. And I just wanted to shake your hand and meet you. And he was so incredibly nice so incredibly gracious it was almost like the way he reacted it was almost like no one had ever said that to him before even though i'm quite sure he's heard he probably heard that he probably heard that 30 times that day but he was so (laughs) gracious and kind to me in that moment realizing that i was just a massive fan of his and i am and remain to this day shook my hand smile couldn't he asked me my name you know could not have been nicer or more receptive to having a two-minute conversation with me and I'll never forget that. And again, one of my greatest you know, sadnesses at that moment is I didn't get a picture, but I didn't want to bother him for that because it was kind of a private party. But I was just like, that was so cool because like that left an impression on me that has stuck with me. And that was, you know, five years ago. I'll never, six years ago, I'll never forget that. I'll never, one of my greatest, because he was just such an incredibly nice guy. And again, it was like, it was like he was hearing this for the first time, even though, you know, he heard it a million times before. And he was just, I, I, again, Sadly, no one else is going to get to meet Bill Paxton because he's gone. And it's one of the greatest losses we've had in acting in Hollywood in years. Um, But I want to put that out there for anyone that's a Bill Paxton fan. No, he was he he appreciated it. And he was as nice as you could imagine he would be. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, Yeah, he's one. He's one of the handful of nice guys. We, We hear a lot about assholes in Hollywood and he was a nice guy and just dynamically talented. Yeah, hundred percent. All right, let's talk about favorite character, um, Patrick. Go ahead and tell your <laughs> favorite. Can we just I, talk about the favorite? I, character? I'm gonna. I'm actually gonna. I'm actually gonna take a different spin on this, and you're gonna like this. But go ahead with your favorite character. Just let's just go ahead and talk about it. I mean, listen. Uh, you know, because my best performance went to uh, Joshua John Miller as Homer because I thought the acting was incredible. The acting was incredible all across the board. And yes, my favorite character was Severin because everyone's favorite character in this movie is Severin. This is the guy I want to be, Damon. <laughs> okay, you turn me into a vampire, I am going to be some mix of Severin and like Dwayne from the Lost Boys. Like I just, I, I like rock and roll, like leather jackets and shit like that. So of course I was going to be like a Severin stan. Everybody's a Severin stan. It's great. Everyone's favorite character in this movie is Severin for sure. But there's some other ones, Damon. It sounds to me like you might have another pick. I do, but I'm actually going in a different direction because Severin is my favorite character. He is everyone's favorite character. Now, I did yeah. like Jesse a lot. I love Lance Henderson. But I'm actually going to flip the script on you here, Patrick, and I'm actually going to give you my least favorite character in this ah. movie. And I'm not – and again, let me be clear. Performance-wise, great performance. It does exactly what the role needed it to be. So I want to make that clear. And part of the reason why I say least favorite character is because the performance was so effective. But man, oh man, were there a couple times during this movie where I just wanted to slap the piss out of Caleb. 
Like, I'm just like, you whiny little bitch. Like, just kill someone and eat already. Like, I, I know that's terrible. People are like, oh, my God, what kind of psychopath are you? But, like, I'm just like, dude, stop being so whiny. Like, God, like, just go out and, like, just try it. Just try to be a vampire for, like, five minutes. Uh, he was, he, he like, and I understand that's the point of the character. He was the moral compass of the movie because he was, he was the yeah. guy who didn't want to do all the vile evil things the vampires were doing and i know it's terrible to say when you watch that bar scene you're not supposed to watch the bar scene and go boy i want to be severin you're supposed yeah, to no think you're, you want you're supposed to think you're going to be caleb like oh i can't kill somebody you know some innocent dude for yeah. no reason but throughout this movie i'm just like dude like i always i love vampire stories and i love when they kind of embrace their vampirism and like he was just he ran so far in the other direction there were moments where i'm just like dude just give in all right just do it do it already yeah, yeah. It's well. It's one of those things. Is I think like part of the appeal of vampires is like we all want to hold on to eternal youth. You know, like we like there's there's a fantasy element to it where where I think fans of vampire movies are just like, yeah, I want to. Here's the kind of vampire I want to be. And Caleb is not wanting to be a vampire, so it's like, well, get, get the fuck out of the way then. <laughs> At least with Michael in Lost Boys. Like he kind of does want to be a vampire, but once he sees how far he has to go, he resists. But like up to that point, he's partying with them. They're riding motorcycles on the beach. They're getting into fights. They're hanging off of bridges. Like he's kind of embracing the lifestyle to a point, whereas Caleb is sort of pushing back against the lifestyle the entire time. Understandable, makes sense in the story. And like you said, it's not because of anything bad that is done performance-wise or in the script. It's just, listen, we're in a vampire movie. Let's all just embrace being vampires, huh? Yeah, I don't I don't know what it says about me that I'm like, I relate to Severin. Uh, that's probably something only my psychologist could answer, but, uh, but yeah, there we're going to talk about that. We probably, yeah, that's, we're going to put mom <laughs> away. We're going to put mom away for a little while. We got a whole new bag of issues to deal with. Uh, <laughs> but yeah, like there's moments in this movie where I just want to slap the dude. Like, will you just be a vampire for like five minutes? Yeah. Yeah. May's way into you, bro. And you could be eternally young and handsome. He's handsome as all get out. It's like, dude, just let's let's do this right now. And let's yeah. and let's, uh, let's party for the next 150 years. I'm just saying. All right. Uh, let's talk about best line in this movie. If you want to set up your best line in, in uh, Near Dark. This is part of what we were talking about, where the idea of the, the lived in uh, world that we are introduced to very quickly when we are introduced to this gang of vampires, this, this gang of roving vampires, you realize they've been arguing and bickering for over a hundred years and uh, a young Homer played by Joshua John Miller and Severin, the, the wild card are, uh, you know, they're, they're just having a bit of a row because they, you know, it, you're living in a van with somebody for over a hundred years. You could, you're going to get irritated at them. What's the matter, Homer? You jealous? A little too little to be jealous. Have any idea what it's like to be a big man on the inside and have a small body on the outside? Do you have any idea what it's like to hear about it every night? <laughs> <laughs> you have any idea what it's like to hear about it every night? Yeah, stop <laughs> like, clearly, like That tells you so much, though. It tells you that Homer says that every fucking night. Yeah. Because he's mentally broken, because he's stuck in a child's body. And Severin, who's like young and cool, is like, dude, I want to stop hearing about that shit. I'm just trying yeah. to have some fun tonight. Yeah, shut Quit the fuck being sh an asshole. Yeah, shut up. I'm tired of hearing about it. <laughs> I love it. Uh, my favorite line, of course, comes from the bar scene. And I could have just played the entire bar scene because every bit of dialogue in that scene is just utterly delicious. I love it. Uh, Jesse actually, again, as I mentioned earlier in the show, had a great line about that where he locks the door and tells people, 
you know, you have two minutes to live, which is a great line. But my favorite line comes from after Bill Paxton is Severin kills the first biker in the bar and he drinks his blood. Uh, it's just, again, I think this might be the most famous line in Near Dark, but it's hard not to pick this one. So here we go. <laughs> <laughs> Finger licking good. It's just so diabolical. Where he's like, mm, ah, finger licking good. I also like the other part where he kind of like he like spits after he's sucking on the guy's neck, and he's like, I prefer, yeah, I prefer shaved. Yeah, I like it when they're shaved. Yeah, I like it when they're shaved. And I was like, yeah, I get that. You suck on a lot of necks after a while. You have a preference. Be like, yeah, you know, I, this guy's got a lot of five o'clock shadow. I think I'm gonna maybe I'll I'll bite I'll bite another part of his body because it's too stubbly. Yeah, but he's just so wild eyed in that moment. And he's just like his finger licking good, and yeah. I'm just like that's <laughs> yeah. so so brilliant. I love that moment. Yeah. Uh, let's have a best gore because there is suddenly some pretty good gore in this movie and and also for a, a low budget lower budget movie there's some great effects in this movie uh yes, there let is. me let me give credit where credit's due right there so what was the best gore for you in uh in near dark man i always loved um the imagery of of uh severin like half fucked up i forgot how it happened like i always thought it was like oh he got burned by the sun and then he kind of stays burned but weirdly they burn and then they kind of heal a little bit um it's when caleb runs over him with a semi truck <laughs> like literally hits him with a semi truck and then he pops up and he's half all he's half all busted to bits that piece of gore is just so iconic and it's like it just spins around in my head. I hear near dark and I see that. And there's just the, the incredible makeup effects in that moment. And it is super gory. It's actually probably one of the goriest moments in the whole movie. Yeah, it's a great scene. And it's uh, very iconic. That look, of course, that's the look you see on the poster. And again, you mentioned anyone that talks about near dark. That's the image that immediately pops in their head is Bill Paxton, all, you know, gory and, and you know, gucked up as Severin in that moment. So it's an incredibly good scene, incredibly gory scene. I agree. It's great. Um, my favorite gore actually comes from a little earlier and it's actually the scene in the hotel when the cops descend upon the hotel and they start shooting into the hotel and the light starts coming into the room and burning vampires. And even though it's not, not technically gory, they're not bleeding necessarily, but there's a great scene in that moment where the first couple of rays of sunshine come through there and it literally burns their skin. There's no, you know, there's no like, Oh, it hurts. And then you suddenly become yeah. like, you know, sensitive and then you, you know, set fire or whatever. Like immediately, as soon as it hurts, it hits them. It literally turns their skin into like ash. And it's really gross and disgusting and just really traumatic watching that. Like there's no, there's no transformation. Like it just burns their skin and it turns directly into like what you think of like, like a, like a charcoal briquette in a fire. You know what I mean? Like yeah. it just turns into that. Oh, it's so dark and so nasty and it's so effective. And you hear the guttural screams from everybody that gets burned. It's a really effective bit of gore and, and a different kind of gore. Cause it's not bloody as much as it is just watching them just burn up. Yeah, no, it's why there's a lot of scenes where they just burn in this movie. How great is the shootout at the at the motel? So good. Like like when when the cops start blasting gunshot blasts and they're firing back and all these bullet holes are being lit by 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 this smoky room and the sunlight that's piercing through, you're just like, God damn. I mean, that looks good. It's such a great looking scene and designed so incredibly well. I mean, it's just a, it's a thing of beauty. Also, just to that point, also when Caleb runs out to get the, the van to save everybody, he's got the blanket over him. When the cops start shooting him, 
And it's kind yeah. of slowed down. He's getting bullet after bullet, and the guy, the cop keeps shooting him. And you see the look on the cop's face, like, why won't this guy go down? Oh, yeah. It's a really well done scene as he just continues to run with the bullets coming into his back. It's a really, really good scene. Um, oh, yeah. Let's talk about best effect. Now, I know I kind of ruined mine already because of the, you know, when the fire touches the vamp, when the, when the sunlight touches the vampires, and they kind of burn up as my favorite gore, uh, which I know kind of plays into best effect. But what is the best effect for you, Patrick? I, I do. I do love how these guys catch fire. Honestly, it's that is kind of what di- I dig about this movie um, that but Severin like there's there's just one moment that stuck out really good is where Severin like forgets and peeks through the window like he kind of pulls the curtain aside and like immediately his face interrupts erupts in a flame and you're like, holy shit, like it looks like, you know, they set Bill Paxton's face on fire and you're like, you know, it's just it, really great craftsmanship on the effect side. There's t- all over this movie. There's tons of like really great firewalks and a couple of like it looked like one or two of the firewalks were like composited where it looks like they put the flames over the top of them in post production. Even that stuff looks pretty good. Like like th- this movie for the effects that it does use, they're incredibly effective. Yeah, it's funny. Fire is a weird one that fire is one of those effects where they've got it down pretty well in CGI, but you can still tell the yeah. difference between a cgi fire and a real like practical effect fire and in 1987 there was no cgi like that it is real burning fire like when they're setting someone on fire it is somebody yeah. or something being set on fire and there's something to be said about the realism of that and i agree that is the best effect uh, i kind of stole a little bit for the best gore but also i'm gonna agree with you and, and i'm not gonna pick one scene in particular it's just all of them it's just the best effect because it works so well because again they just burst into flame and go right into ash like there's no transition for these vampires you see how much van- how much sunlight you know tortures them and i love yeah. that because there's no you know gradual transition there's no we can be on the sunlight for two minutes before we die like you see it even like a new vampire like caleb when he starts smoking and smoldering as he yeah. walks through walks towards his family's home like you see him just kind of like he's starting even as the sun's coming up it's a really really well done effect they do it again later in the car when they're trying to put up the the, the foil and trying to block out the sun and everyone's kind of catching fire and and the, and the sunlight's hurting them it's just it's a great effect throughout the entire movie oh absolutely yeah some of the some of the best uh setting fire to people that i've seen in any movie yeah so let's talk about the coolest moment because these vampires have a very quiet cool to them uh so what is your coolest moment in near dark yeah i mean again the big appeal of vampire movies is i kind of want to be a vampire right there is a movie where or there's a point in the movie where um i think it was a cop that shoots jesse point blank in the chest it's caleb's father Oh, it's Caleb's father. Okay, yeah. that's right. So he shoots him point blank in the chest, and Jesse spits out the bullet, catches it, and 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 throws it back at the guy. And I was like, "Damn, that's fucking cool!" <laughs> like it's just a cool moment. And I'm like, I want to be cool enough to just spit the bullet out. Yeah, that's a pretty badass moment because that's right. Right before that, he points the gun, and and Caleb's like, "You don't want to do that." And Jesse's yeah. like, "Listen to your son." And he does it. And he spits it back out. He's like, "Here, this is for you." <laughs> And I was yeah. just like, oh, my God, it's so, so evil and so sinister. I love that moment. Uh, I think my coolest moment is actually another. I'm sorry. I'm going back to the bar scene again. But when, you know, you have Jess or you have Severin and 
uh, Caleb at the bar, but then the rest of the group are all sitting in a booth and the bartender, the, the waitress comes over with the drinks and he says, I just need the glass. And then Jesse gets up and he's kind of like tormenting her and he's like touching her and it's really creepy. And then she says, you don't want the drink. And then Diamondback grabs her and says, no, I got that. And she slits her throat and pours it into the glass and they set it, they kind of slam it back down on the table. And that just sets the tone for everything yeah. that comes after that in the bar, because up to that moment, they're all kind of, you know, Kayla or excuse me, Severin's kind of fucking with people. He's kind of fucking with the bar patrons, kind of fucking with the bartender. He, you know, they, they get to the scene where uh, he lets Caleb punch the guy and the guy kind of goes flying. So again, it's, it's you see it coming, but when she pulls the girl down and slits her throat and then puts it into the glass and they draw, oh, it's just such a cool scene when they do, when she does it. Like, it's just, such a, it's such a cool effect. Like, no, I got the drinks and slits her throat and then puts her head down and you see it just dripping into the bar, into the, uh, into the mug. Yeah, no, I love how every piece of that bar scene escalates. And that's that is that moment where you're like, oh, we're at the point of no return. We're going to start killing people now. Yeah, you better get the fuck out or you're done. (laughs) Uh, Let's talk about the most unique vampire trait in this movie, because, again, this 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 film kind of flouts all the traditional rules of vampirism, you know, outside of the sunlight, you know, the crosses. And there's a there's a great line in in uh, in vampires, the John Carpenter movie where James Woods' character is talking to the new priest. You've seen that movie, right? You've seen vampires. Yeah, I mean, okay. maybe once on and, TV. And, and he, says, he, says, he says something like, forget everything you know about vampires. They don't, you know, they don't, uh, you know, crosses don't work. Uh, garlic, you want to try garlic? Probably try putting garlic on your neck and so one of these bloodsuckers will bend you over while, while he walks, his, uh, while, he, while he struts a walk of chocolate up your, up your, up your <laughs> neck while, he, while he's sucking the blood out of you. Something like that's a great line. Uh, but he's basically saying, like, all the things you know about vampires is bullshit. And they really do that in this movie where, again, outside of sunlight, turning them into crispy critters, uh, there's not anything else that really, you know, kind of goes by the traditional rules of vampirism. But what is your most unique vampire trait in Near Dark? I love that they don't turn at all. There's not even teeth like they are. They are just people like they just thirst for blood. They don't they don't have a turn. Because I was, you know, that's the one drawback about, it's like, well, I don't want to be aware of because I don't want my body to be ripped apart every full moon. It, it seems uncomfortable. And then, like, the Lost Boys are the coolest guys in town, but when they want to become, when they have to be full-blown vampires, th- their faces turn and they look kind of monstrous, and it kind of ruins their good looks. So I was like, man, like, if you're locked in this moment, like, you're just a vampire, like, you don't turn in any sort of way, shape, or form. I like that. Yeah, it was a cool it was a cool twist because it's so unique to this movie and so unique to this particular kind of vampire that while, you know, they are vampires, they don't do anything by the normal vampire rules outside of bursting into flames when they get in the sunlight. Uh, I like that. I like that. They like they're one again. I mentioned earlier, like there's one point where you see one of them has a gun with a cross on it. So you get a, right. you get a, you get a note right away that that's not hurting them. You know what I mean? There's none of the, you know, sleeping in coffins, holy water, none of that kind of stuff. They kind of take away all the religious aspect of vampirism and they just boil it down to the very basics. You know what I mean? And, and again, no transformation, no fangs. Uh, they don't really show the overly dramatic of the biting. Like they do show the biting, but they don't show them like, you know, ripping up in their face. Their fangs are out. They're all looking all wild eyed. Like they drink yeah. it like it's food. You know what I mean? Um, so I'm again, kind of like with favorite character. I'm going in a little slightly different direction with, with favorite, with favorite coolest or most unique vampire trait. And this is the one I'm mentioning this because this is the one flaw I have with this movie. I'm mentioning my one issue with this movie. 
The most unique vampire trait is that to transform back into humans, all you have to do is get a blood transfusion. It's the most <laughs> bizarre like twist in this entire movie where his dad, where Caleb's dad, who's a veterinarian, gives him a blood transfusion and suddenly he's cured. And he does the same thing for May at the end. Now it's kind of a cool twist at the end that you yeah. don't have to be haunted by vampirism forever. You can be saved. I'm okay with all that. Kind of, again, kind of a cool different twist. Kind of like Michael, you know, going back to normal in Lost Boys. He doesn't become a full, full, a full blown vampire. Um, but yeah, it was just weird. I'm like, so all you need is a blood transfusion and you're no longer a vampire. <laughs> yeah. There, there's something about ingesting it. And then there's another thing about, you know, like having it pumped through your veins. It's a totally different thing. It's I, I don't get it. I don't it doesn't make sense. But it was my other thing. I was like, well, this this is really unique. So it's almost like they treat this. And I, I think about the beginning of the movie when May bites Caleb, he almost immediately starts turning. So it's almost like a zombie bite, like you're infected. Like you, it's almost like a disease. Yeah. Because if it because if it can be cured by a blood transfusion, then it's clearly just like a like a, some sort of weird bloodborne disease. I guess that's how. And again, they don't bother explaining it, and it's fine. And I don't even care that they explain it. It's just unique. I'm like, oh, so a blood transfusion will fix this. Interesting. Yeah. And again, that's kind of when I say it's like my when I say it's like my least favorite part. It's just such a weird choice. It is. Like that's how they become saved. Like if it had been killing jesse and then like his entire bloodline disappears because he was the oldest vampire okay kind of get that that's kind of true but again that's traditional this flouts convention i'm okay with that but it's just a yeah. it was just a weird one because like they just jesse gets a transfusion suddenly he's not a vampire and he does the same thing to may and she's like i'm afraid of the sun you're like what the huh <laughs> so, again it was unique because i'm like the the fuck just happened uh <laughs> Yeah. Uh, all right. Let's uh, let's close out with our, our last category, of course, is always here on the show, Patrick. And that's is it scary? Uh, Near Dark was actually once rated, I believe, by Entertainment Weekly as like the 21st scariest movie of all time. Now, this is going back a few years. Uh, but for you, Near Dark, is it scary? I don't think it's remotely scary. I think it's a thriller in, in some respects, but it's very much like an outlaw movie. It's it's it is a Western. You know, I think I think it's it's more of a Western than anything else. And even the hardest core of moments in this movie is reminds me more of a thriller than it ever does a horror. Like it, it, to me, like the horrific elements are just the last moments where Caleb is sort of fighting off the vampires who, you know, who, who are mad at him because he's he's kind of screwed up their whole situation. Outside of that, it doesn't really play like a horror movie to me. I, I disagree. I think it actually is fairly scary. Now, is it the scariest movie in the world? Absolutely not. But I think there's enough kind of creepy elements in this movie to make it scary. I talked about the scene with Homer and Sarah where it's just very creepy and dark and kind of you're, you're, very ominous scene where you're kind of in that moment. You're like, oh, Jesus, don't let him kill the little girl. Don't let him kill the little girl. Like, you know, something bad's going to happen. That's a really cool scene. The bar scene, as you said, when it kind of ups the uh, intensity, when you kind of realize that everyone here is going to die and they're probably going to die horrifically. Uh, it's a different kind of scare. It's not the traditional kind of scary, but in that moment, like it raises the, um, raises the intensity every scene. So that's where I say, I do think it is scary in those ways. Is it the scariest film in the world? Absolutely not. But I think in those moments, it, it, it's it's scary enough where I do consider it a, a pretty well done horror film in those moments because it doesn't it doesn't smack you over the head with the scares. But there's enough moments where you're kind of like, oh, that's creepy or oh, that's kind of you kind of wonder what's going to happen next. So that's kind of where I come from. And like, is it scary with this movie? I see it more as like it's if it's thrills and chills, this one's heavy on the thrills, low on the chills. Yeah, like I said, I disagree. I, I think I think when you, I, there's enough. 
there's enough for me to cross it over into the scary category. It's not overly scary. I'm not going to lie and say it's like a terrifying movie. It's not that. Uh, yeah. But I just think, again, I think about that scene with, with Homer and Sarah. I think about the scene in the bar. I think about the shootout. There's a couple moments where it's like, okay, some pretty good, pretty good, you know, jump, pretty good scares here and there. Not overall, but at moments. Um, hey. Damon's not turning the lights off tonight, guys. <laughs> it's, Near dark uh, scared the shit actually, out of Damon. No, I, 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 21 on his most scary list. I will turn the lights off because I want Severin to come get me, and I want to <laughs> I want to have some freaking fun, apparently. See, I want to be a cool rock star vampire. I so do. Bad. I do. Yeah, like I said, that's something we're going to talk about with our therapist one day. Uh, <laughs> all right. Uh, overall, I think we both agree Near Dark is a pretty much a classic. It's an iconic film. Uh, as we said earlier, currently available on Shudder. Hey, Shudder. Oh, hi, Shudder. And uh, so check it out over there right now while you get a chance. Part of the reason why we're doing this podcast right now is because it just popped up on Shudder. So go over and check it out if you haven't seen Near Dark. Or if you haven't seen Near Dark in a lot of years, go check it out again. Because I hadn't seen it in at least a decade. And rewatching it was a ton of fun. Um, so highly recommend it. Highly recommend enjoying the performances. Uh, as always, want to say a big thank you to all of our uh, listeners. We appreciate you guys more than anything. You have no idea how much we appreciate every single one of you that tunes into the show uh, each and every week. Make sure you check us out on all of your favorite podcast platforms, Apple Podcasts, Spotify, uh, Amazon Music, uh, Google Podcasts, iHeartRadio, Stitcher, and of course, you can always find us over on my website, nerdcoremovement.com. If you have questions, comments, movies you'd like us to review, anything you'd like us to talk about on the podcast, Feel free to email us. You can find us at rotlivingdead at gmail.com. That's R-O-T, livingdead, at gmail.com. And you can also find us over on Twitter. You can follow me at Damon Martin, and you are? At Director Patrick. Big thank you, as always, for everyone tuning in. We will see you next week for another edition of Rewind of the Living Dead. Thanks for tuning in. We'll see you then. Peace.